If you have a copy of God's Word, please join me in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be a Black Pew Bible within reach, and it's on page 853 in the Pew Bible. We've been studying the Gospel of Mark now for over a year. This is actually our 36th and final message in the Gospel of Mark, and we're fittingly finishing with the resurrection of Jesus. In just a moment, we'll read Mark 16, verses 1 through 8, but before we do, I'd like us to bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, today we have great cause to celebrate. Every day is a blessing from you, and every day is a reason to be thankful, but today is a day we set aside specifically to think about the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's something that should be on our mind far more than that, but Lord, we today celebrate your grace, your goodness, your power over death, and as we open up your word this morning, Lord, I ask for insight into these truths of Scripture and that you might just bring them to life for us so that we can see how powerful your truth is in our own hearts and lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I remember, it wasn't that long ago, not really that long ago, when I graduated from high school. Okay, it was a while ago. Um, And uh, I remember on my graduation night, we had our graduation indoors, and I just remember it being hot. That's the that's the thing that sticks out. To, I mean, that gown was sticking to everybody, and we just we just wanted to get through it. But we had been practicing for this thing and getting it all ready. And those who had speeches had been working and getting everything just right. And and furthermore, I mean, we'd been preparing for this day for for years. Some of us had spent at least four years in high school, maybe longer, getting ready for the day we were going to graduate. The ceremony went well. Lots of pictures were taken. Lots of kisses from grandmothers and cheek pinching. And, and I remember afterwards as we were driving home, what now? All these years we've been building up to this and the excitement, the anticipation. Now What? Uh, everything had, had done up to that point had been focused on the studies and, and, and doing well and getting good grades and, and, then, and then working towards this, this graduation celebration. And now there was this sort of almost like a letdown and a feeling of, well, what am I going to do now? The Gospel of Mark here in Mark chapter 16 introduces to us the idea of the resurrection But Mark, at the end of verse 8, ends the story very abruptly and almost leaves us with the same question. After building up to all of this, the great culmination of these previous 15 chapters, now the story ends almost leaving you with a thought of, well, now what? Read with me as we, follow along with me as we read verses 1 through 8 of Mark 16. It says, when the Sabbath was, was passed, Mary Magdalene... Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. 
And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now that's where the story ends. Now, you may be interested, most of your Bibles, and I know we've, uh, we've got a lot of other things to talk about, so I'm not going to dwell on this very much, but I want to be totally up front here. Most of your Bibles, if you look down, they'll say, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. So there's a little bit more in Mark, but your Bibles may have it bracketed off or some asterisk in there. I just want to mention this briefly, that the New Testament is composed from thousands and thousands of manuscripts that have been assembled throughout all the, the, the centuries since the Bible was written. And scholars have worked on over 5,000 manuscripts to give us the Bible we have today. And what they find from these collection of manuscripts, some of them are just a fragment the size of a postage stamp. Others are complete copies of the scriptures. And as they combine everything they find, one of the things that they've discovered is that there is remarkable agreement, whether they found it a thousand years ago or whether they found it in the last century, they discovered that these manuscripts are amazingly uh, in agreement. And, and so when, when we open up the Bible, we can be confident that we have what was originally written. Even though we don't have the actual first edition of Mark's gospel, we don't have any first editions of Paul's letters or any of the other parts of Scripture, what we have is faithful uh, renditions and copies down through the years. And there's remarkable agreement among the manuscripts that are collected, with the exception of this one passage. Some of the older manuscripts include a longer ending to Mark. But scholars, as they've discovered older and older manuscripts that get closer and closer to the original writings, to the time of Christ, they've discovered that this last section of Mark, verses 9 through 20, are not in those original ones. And so probably somewhere along the way, a scribe just looked at the ending of Mark and said, it can't simply end like this. We know there's more to the story. When you read Matthew and Luke and John, we know that, that the women went out and they told the disciples about the good news. And then we knew that the disciples ran to the tomb and they came and they, they found the tomb empty. And they know that, that Jesus appeared to Mary there in the garden and then later to the other disciples. There's, there's more to the story, but Mark seems to cut it off abruptly, almost leaving you with that question, well, now what? It ends with verse 8, and they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. It's like, Mark, did, did you forget to, to tell us all the other things that, that Matthew and Luke and John did? Why do you end it there? Well, Mark, has, 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 all the way through his book, has been amazingly brief, and does not spend a lot of time on the details. We've seen that. He moves from one story to the next. He just gives the most pertinent information and then moves right on. And it's almost like at the end of the book, he says, now, here you have it. I want you to decide. Here's what happened. And the woman stood there trembling and astonished. Now what? 
What will you do with what you've read and you've heard about the crucified and risen Lord Jesus? Here as these women came to the tomb, and it's fantastic that it was, it was these, the women. You know, in, in the first century, women were not highly regarded as, as even and equal with the men in the society. If, if, if Mark was making all this information up, if, 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 this is a, if, a, if this is a fabricated tale, he most certainly wouldn't have made the women the heroes of Sunday morning. Now, this is truth. And the fact is that Jesus' disciples were still hiding. They were still scared and trembling, fearful that all their hopes and dreams had been dashed. And they were without hope. But these women came in faith. They were at the crucifixion. They stayed around while Jesus died. And they were here Sunday morning. It tells us in verse 1 and uh, verse 2 that they came at first light. They left the house, it looks like, when it was still dark. Along the way, the sun began to rise. And they came and brought spices to anoint his body. Now, this was a tremendous act of love. The, the Egyptians, now, they practiced embalming, and, you know, we, we all know the, the mummification process and heard those stories, but that wasn't part of the Jewish culture. This wasn't an obligation that these women were fulfilling. This was simply an act of love for their Lord and Savior, the one who had done so much for them, who had demonstrated so much loving kindness and grace in their lives. Now they wanted to go and do something to show their affection for him. They went to that tomb out of love, but they also went in faith. It tells us that they didn't know. Verse 3 says they're asking each other, so by the way, there's this stone that we've got to deal with. Now they went not knowing how they were going to do this. Now we know from the, from the text that this was a gigantic stone. This was huge. It was usually uh, put in place, and once it dropped down into its groove and rolled into place, it was nearly impossible to roll back up out of that groove. It was meant to be permanent. And these women were like, ah, how are we going to deal with that? But they got there, and they found that the stone was already gone. It says in verse 5 that they were alarmed as they met this angel. You know, most of us picture angels and wings, usually maybe kind of a little bit fat and playing harps and just, just, just the friendliest, cheerful, chubby, rosy-cheeked. The thing is, is that in the Bible, every time a person meets an angel, they're terrified. They're scared witless. And it says here that these women were too. The, the word for alarmed in the original means fear and wonder, astonishment and distress. It's, in fact, it's the same, same word used of Jesus when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he went to the cross in the distress that he felt. This was not a, oh, can we take a selfie? It was like, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to die. And he calms them, tells them not to fear. He tells them not to fear. He tells them that Jesus is alive and to go take the news to the disciples. They're given a message and a mission to go and proclaim the good news that their Savior lives. You know, you and I have that same message and that very same mission. We have the good news about the risen Savior. What a great message to share with one another. Maybe today you're going to go see family members who didn't come to church with you this morning. Maybe tomorrow as you head back to work, you'll encounter folks that 
that don't have much time for the story of Jesus. What better time, what a better season of the year than to let them know about the crucified and risen Lord. But you know, we hear this story. We come today and we celebrate. We sing exciting songs. Maybe you've had a great breakfast already. Maybe you're going to have a big family gathering later on today. You'll go out and maybe the kids will go do an Easter egg hunt and, and you'll have excitement and fun. And then perhaps at the very end of the day, after all the celebration has died down, you may find yourself asking, well, now what? Jesus is alive. I've heard this story before. He's risen again, but tomorrow morning when I get up on that Monday that I hate so much, What's the big deal? How does this impact me? How does this change me going forward? Now what? Well, the Bible knows that, God knows that we ask these sorts of questions. And I love that God is a question-answering God. He doesn't mind questions, and he wants to meet us where we're at. And there's a passage of Scripture that answers just this question, kind of the now what of the resurrection. What does it mean for me? What is this, how does this change my life today? If you flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you have that Black Pew Bible there, it's page 962. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Paul, the Apostle Paul, anticipates this question, now what? What's the big deal? How does the resurrection change my everyday life? As I get up and go to work, as I get kids ready for school, as I pay my taxes, by the way, that are due, as, as I go through my daily life, how does the resurrection impact me on a personal level? Well, the Apostle Paul wanted to deal with this because he has just been talking about, and we're not going to read through 1 Corinthians 15, you can check it out later, but he's been explaining to these Christians in the city of Corinth, just how essential the resurrection was to their faith, how important it was. is the cornerstone. In fact, he goes on to say, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're all a bunch of idiots. That's my paraphrase. But he says, we of all people are the most hopeless. It's that important. And he says in verse 58, based upon everything that I've just told you about the resurrection, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That word, therefore, it always means on the basis of what I've just got done telling you about, here's what you need to know. On the basis of everything you've just heard about the resurrection, this is what you need to keep in mind. Paul David Tripp, one of my favorite writers, he says, you've not properly understood the resurrection unless you understand that the empty tomb is to form for you and for I a lifestyle. The resurrection is not just something you celebrate. The resurrection is something you live. Powerful words. Now, we could comb the New Testament and find lots of 
different ways in which the resurrection applies to us. But this verse gives us three. I want to just mention briefly this morning. First of all, the resurrection life is a confident life. The resurrection life is a confident life. The Apostle Paul tells us in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, and the word is a, in the Greek it's a plural uh, that it's inclusive. It means, he's saying, therefore, everybody, hey, my beloved brothers and sisters, men, women, and children, listen up. Therefore, I want you to be steadfast and immovable. This word steadfast means to be firmly planted in place. Solid. I remember in, in, in junior high, I decided I wanted to go out and play football. I was a big kid, kind of overweight, and my parents probably thought that the running would be good for me. I was not very good at playing football. And so I was kind of a, uh, like, a, uh, like, a, like, a, like a tackle dummy, basically, in practice. So my job was to just stand there and try not to get knocked over, you know, I remember these guys would come at me, and I, I felt like I was big, but they just looked so much bigger. They were shaving and stuff, and it just, these, they were huge, but my job was to try not to move, and they taught me how to, you know, they teach you how to stand and to get a good foundation, to be steadfast. And I didn't do a very good job of being steadfast, but God calls us as Christians to do just that, to stand firm in the midst of trials in the midst of tribulations and difficulties, to, to stand firm. I remember also that we had a dog. Her name was Stella, and we were trying to uh, kennel train her. And Stella was a very, very stubborn dog. And um, I still remember, we, we finally got her in the kennel for the first time, and she, she stayed the night, and she, she cried the whole time. She hated it. She hated it. And so let her out, and she took off like a bolt and spent the day in the backyard. And when it came time to try to get her back into that kennel, she was having nothing to do with it. And so we had the, the leash on her, and we were trying to pull her, and she was obeying the scripture. She was being steadfast. She dug in, and she wasn't going anywhere. She won that battle. <laughs> but as Christians, we dig in not just, just for the purpose of digging in, and we dig in not just for uh, empty reasons, but he wants us to be steadfast and anchored in God himself, knowing that we have an unbelievable God. I just want to tell you three things about God this, this morning that we can be rock-solid confident in. First of all, God is faithful. God is faithful. These disciples, oh man, they had they had put everything, they put all their chips on Jesus. And when they watched him get put up on that cross, the doubt, the fear that must have flooded their hearts as they slipped back to their homes. And they thought, how could you, Jesus? You promised. You said you would be there. You said you'd never leave us or forsake us. Here you are breathing your last upon this cross. You promised. The empty tomb proves that our God is faithful. He keeps his word. 
Jesus said, you will will destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He spoke the truth and he kept his promises. Sometimes we aren't so good at keeping our word. Might promise our kids we'll go out and play catch. Might promise to meet a loved one at a certain time in a certain place and stay at work a little too long. Sometimes we blow it when it comes to keeping our word. But you know what? Our God never does. We can be confident and and dig our feet into that, that he keeps his word. When you open up the scriptures and you read a promise that's for you, you can take it to the bank. Our God is faithful. Secondly, the resurrection tells us that our God is powerful. Our God is powerful. It was God's mighty hand that rolled the stone away. It was an all-powerful God who breathed life into his son and brought him back again. And you know what he tells us? That that same power that raised Jesus up from the dead is available to you and I as we seek to serve him. When we feel weak, when we feel like we can't take another step, we can't get out of bed in the morning, when we don't have the wisdom to deal with a particular situation, we feel like you're at the end of your rope with that, that rebellious child. When the, the, the figures don't add up in your checkbook, you're scratching your head about how you're going to pay your mortgage this month. Our God is powerful to answer prayer. Our God is powerfully at work in our life. There's a passage in Ephesians. You don't need to turn there. It's Ephesians 1, 18 through 20. And he tells, the Apostle Paul tells the Christians there, he says, I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened so that you may be able to know what is the immeasurable greatness of the power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. Do you hear what Paul's saying there? He says, I want you to know. I want your, your, the eyes of your heart to be opened up. I like the imagery there. I want the, the, the light bulb to go on for you, he's saying. So that you can know just how great the power of God is in your life. That same power that raised Jesus up from the dead is at work in you and me. You know what that means? It means like the Bible says, when I am weak, he is strong. When I don't have wisdom, he is God all wise. When when I don't know what to do, he's the source of our understanding and strength. Third thing I want to tell you about God, that you can be rock solid confident, that you can have a confident life in, is that our God is unbelievably loving. That our God is unbelievably loving. To fathom and understand the type of love that was, that was poured out in the cross, well, we can only try to begin to grasp the kind of love that would take for a father to send his son to die for his enemies. None of them, none of us were asking for it. None of us were saying, ooh, ooh, I need a savior. Romans 5.8 tells us that while we were still enemies, Jesus Christ died for us, for you and for me. And the fact that, that God brought Jesus up from the dead to seal the deal, to, to finish 
off and vanquish his foe, death, is a signature on the ultimate love poem. God loves us so much that he would give his one and only son. We're all moved by love stories of people who who go to great extremes to express their love for another. Writing every day while their loved one is away at war. Crazy, loving, awesome proposals that people do during baseball games or on, in the, writing it in the sky. We're, we're moved by great expressions of love. And the Bible teaches us that, that no greater act of love has been shown to us than in God sending His only Son. The resurrection life is a confident life. But secondly, it's a devoted life. It's a devoted life. The second section of verse 58 tells us that we should always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. I I spent some time trying to think about what he means there. The word abounding means to exist in abundance. It's the idea of of much more than it was expected, an overflow. And the, the word is often used to speak of God's love for us. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says that God is able to make all grace abound to you. God is extremely extravagant when it comes to his gifts. Some of you may have had a, a family member who was like this. Maybe your parents were tough on you. They didn't give you anything that you didn't earn. And you didn't get a dime unless you had worked for it. But along comes that uncle or that aunt or that grandparent and they're, they're slipping you candy or, or a, a 10 here and there and, and, and uh, don't, 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 don't tell your parents I gave you this. And you've got that, that extravagant love that's shown that, that, that no matter what, they're there, they're generous, they're giving. We all know people like that. We've all seen and met people who just, if they see a need, they just want to meet it. They want to demonstrate generosity. Imagine God infinitely more loving, infinitely more gracious, infinitely more generous. A couple years ago, our family went on vacation up in the Upper Peninsula, and we went and found a few of the waterfalls. Uh, I I love waterfalls, and especially when they're just kind of off the beaten trail, and you just get alone in in the, the quiet and the beauty and the peace. But you stand underneath one of those ice cold waterfalls that just, no matter how ready you are for it, it's just absolute shock. You know that water just keeps coming. You can stand there all day long and that water does not stop. I don't know where it comes from. I could write down and try to study and explain where the headwaters or whatever, but ultimately I just know it's there. I don't understand all the the details of it, but I just know it keeps coming and it keeps coming and it keeps coming. God's grace is like that for us. We can't always explain it, We know we certainly don't deserve it, but it just keeps coming, and it keeps coming, and it it keeps coming, and this is how God is towards us, and he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be like that in your service to God. I want you to be abounding in faithfulness as you seek to serve him and use your gifts, because God is that way toward us. We should desire to live that way toward him, not that we're trying to pay off our salvation, Not that we're trying to pay God back and to somehow uh, even the deal. 
Impossible. But out of love and gratitude, that should be our heart's desire, to be abounding in the work of the Lord. One of my heroes is a, name, uh, is a man by the name of uh, Adoniram Judson. Back in the early 1800s, Adoniram had a desire to take the word of God to the country of Burma, modern-day Myanmar. They didn't have a copy of the scriptures in their language. In fact, there was no one there in that whole country telling people about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he heard about this need, and he said, somebody's got to go. They need to hear this news. And so, in 1813, he became the first foreign missionary to be sent from America over to Burma. But before he, he went, and in fact, on the very day he was commissioned to go, he met a young woman and immediately fell in love with her. Within a month, he proposed to her. But he knew that asking for her hand in marriage was a high cost because to go to this remote place with hostile government and unknown diseases was, was going to be a great, great danger to both of them. And so this is the letter he wrote to her father asking for her hand in marriage. Think if this would fly for your daughter. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. <laughs> whether you can consent to see her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps even a violent death? Can you consent to all this for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved? through her means, from external woe and despair. Can you consent to this? <laughs> that was his proposal letter to his future father-in-law. Remarkably, her father said, it's up to her. <laughs> and it was her passion to take the gospel to Burma as well. And so she said yes. She wrote to a friend and said, I feel willing and expect, if nothing in providence prevents, to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I have about come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and go where God in his providence shall fit, see fit to place me. That right there, my brothers and sisters, Anne Hasseltine, her words fit what Paul is saying here, to be abounding in the work of the Lord. She said, to see fit, to, to wherever God will see fit to place me. Whatever you want, God, I want to serve you. I want to be give, given in devotion to you. And the truth was that 
that Adoniram's prophecy proved true. She never did see her family again. They sailed for Myanmar. Adoniram himself wouldn't return home again for 33 years. He was imprisoned in 1824 when political tensions ran high and he was suspected of being a spy. His wife, with their little infant child, grew gravely ill and weak, trying to care for the child without the help of her husband. He was in prison for a number of months. When he was finally released, illness had already taken its toll on her, and she died 11 months later. Adoniram would go on to bury another wife on the field. He he was married three times. He lost six children on the field. Spent 37 of his 61 years overseas. But his whole desire was to take the word of God where Jesus had not been named, to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the truth among a people who had never heard And God rewarded his faithfulness and allowed him to be able to translate the entire Bible into the Burmese language. It's still used today. Adoniram Judson's translation is still used by the people today. During the course of his ministry, he was able to baptize over 7,000 Christians, 63 Christian congregations, and 163 more missionaries came to Burma. And to this day, over 150 years later, there are close to 3,700 congregations who can trace their origin to this man's labor of love. He and Anne gave up their lives so that the Burmese could hear about Jesus. When we think about the end of the resurrection story and we ask ourselves, now what? What now? What are you calling me to do with this, God? We're told here that we should be always abounding in the work of the Lord because the power of the resurrection is at work within us. May God enable us to be faithful as well. The final thing that we see here is we ask, what now? Is that the resurrection life is a worthwhile life. The resurrection life is a worthwhile life. He tells us at the very end of the verse, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He says, in the Lord, when you devote yourselves to the things of God, your labor is not in vain. Now, we can do things to waste time. We all know that. Some of us are are colossal experts at time-wasting devices. The amount of hours we spend on solitaire or other games or or clearing time away, But he says, I want you to do this. I want you to labor in the Lord. It doesn't mean you're not supposed to have leisure time and have fun. That's that's not scriptural. But it is possible to spend our lives, our energy, our time on things that do not matter. Listen, at the final judgment, God's not going to care on how I've fared in my fantasy baseball league this year. He's not going to care that I can dominate at Clash of Clans or if I have a fat 401k or drove fast cars, or had a room full of trophies. What's going to matter is what I've done in the Lord, that I've labored in the Lord for His glory and for His kingdom, not my glory and my kingdom. It's all about the treasures I laid up in heaven. 
while I was here on earth. What he's telling us here is that because of the resurrection, when you labor in the Lord, when you do things in service to God for his glory, for his namesake, he says it's not in vain. The word vain means empty, hollow. He says you have purpose. If you're a Christian and you serve God, you have purpose and meaning. God gives your life direction and focus, laser-sharp focus on what God wants each of us to do. And just for the record, some of us think, I I, I do this, I do that, but it doesn't doesn't feel like I'm doing anything all that important. And I can understand you, you pastors, you've got a really important job, but I'm I'm just an average person. This passage is not speaking to pastors. This is speaking to the congregation. And he says, your labor for the Lord, what you do for his glory, for his name, it's not empty. It's not worthless. It's a worthwhile life. Busy mom, preparing lunches, cleaning the house, busing kids to practices, laundry, Your labor is not in vain. Faithful teacher, loving those kids, putting your arm around them, being there for them, teaching. Your labor is not in vain. Prayer warrior, feels like you don't have the physical strength anymore to serve in the church. You think, all I can do is pray, I guess. Oh, know that your labor It is not in vain. Teenager, you who obeys your parents even though you're sure they're idiots. (laughs) But you faithfully obey them nonetheless. Know this, your labor is not in vain. Parents, you who have no idea what you're doing with that teenager... But on your knees you cry out for wisdom and ask God for his grace and for him to use them in powerful ways. Know that your labor is not in vain. Nursery worker, changing poopy diapers, ministering in an often thankless job, your labor is not in vain. You who continue to share the gospel and pray for the salvation of a hard-hearted relative that wants nothing to do with Jesus, know that your labor is not in vain. When you serve the Lord, whatever capacity he's called you to, whether at home or in church or somewhere in between, know that your labor is not empty. It is not in vain. The resurrection life is a worthwhile life. At the end of the Gospel of Mark, as the passage ends abruptly, we're left with this question, now what? Now what? And maybe many of us feel the same today. What do I do with the resurrection story? It's great news. Yeah, we'll sing some songs and eat a bunch of food, but now what? The Bible tells you, That the resurrection reminds you and I that we have a confident life. That we have a God who is faithful to keep his promises. And he's keeping those same promises to you and I today. 
The resurrection reminds us that we should live a devoted life because Jesus conquered death. That, that he, would, he considered that this, this message so important that it was the very first words that he gave to his disciples. Now go tell people about it. When you and I live a devoted life, being willing to forsake and to give up for his kingdom, for his glory, you'll be honored and rewarded. And finally, the resurrection reminds us that we have a worthwhile life. We have purpose. We have meaning as we labor in the Lord. But maybe you're here today and perhaps this message has never held all that much significance to you. Maybe you've outright just disregarded it altogether. That that Bible, hocus pocus, I've heard enough of that in my life. I'll, I'll come here to appease a family member, but I certainly don't believe any of this is true. I want to encourage you this morning to give it a fresh look. The resurrection really does change everything. Absolutely everything. You know, many of us, without Christ, we're, we're laboring maybe to make money, to build up a name for ourselves, whatever, whatever the purpose may be. I guarantee you that there'll be some day when the emptiness of those pursuits dawns upon you. You think, I've put all my eggs into this basket, I've spent my whole life pursuing this, and what do I have to show for it? Sugar Ray Leonard, the famous boxer, had, had an illustrious career. But finally, when he had to retire, this is what he said, nothing could satisfy me outside the ring. Nothing can satisfy me outside the ring. There's nothing in life that could compare to becoming a world champion. Having your hand raised in that moment of glory with thousands, millions of people cheering you on. After his career, he struggled with extreme bouts of depression because he felt like everything that he did of importance took place in that ring. If you're here today and your pursuit, your, your goal is something other than knowing Jesus and making him known, at some point you're going to end up at the same place that he did. A place of emptiness, a place of hollowness, wondering if this truly is it. This morning, maybe that's you. Maybe you're thinking, ah, for the first time in my life, I, I see that there is purpose. There's something to pursue and to pursue with all my heart and soul and mind. Just a moment as, the, as our worship team comes and sings one or two more songs. I just want to encourage you, a few of us pastors will be up front and if, as, as we're singing, if, if you want somebody to talk to, we'd be more, ha- more than happy to, to pray with you about anything that you're wrestling with in life, any questions that you might have, we'd be happy to talk to you about. The resurrection is unbelievably good news. Jesus is alive. Now what? What are you going to do with what you know about Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for the great news of the glorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The hope that we now have 
the joy that we can have, the peace that we can have, knowing that our Savior lives, that He went to the cross as our substitute to pay for our sins and then rose from the grave victorious. We can't have one without the other. The crucifixion and the resurrection are the cornerstones of our faith. And is that, that, that is the good news that we proclaim today, that, that God offers salvation to those who come to Him in faith. Lord, may the resurrection change our lives. May we, as tomorrow morning dawns, as we think, well, what now? May our life be different because we know we have a risen Savior. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.